And so the point of uh, his writing is that there's a culture into which all of this happens. And that helps us to understand what Jesus is saying through the parable we're going to unpack today. All right? Uh, and you'll hear me quote Kenneth Bailey several times uh, today. And then the final thing I want to say is that most likely if you open a Bible uh, either here or later and you look at Matthew chapter 20, that's where we're going to be, Matthew 21 through 16, just as in my Bible here, it's the NIV, it calls this parable the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And by the way, it's one of my favorite parables of Jesus, if not my favorite. Eh, prodigal sons first, okay? But at any rate, um, that's what it's called, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. I want you to think of it instead, and I get this from Kenneth Bailey, and I believe he's right. I want you to think of it instead as the parable of the compassionate employer, okay? So that our focus, the focus of the parable, I believe, and the focus then of our attention is on the landowner, the compassionate employer in the story. He's the most important character in the story, and he is the focus of the story, all right? So with that in mind, Matthew chapter 21 through 16. But let's pray just before we read that. God, we pray again. Uh, you're, in, you're here because you promised you would be. So you're in our midst, Holy Spirit. You are here to guide us, to... Uh, work in us and with us and then ultimately through us that we might hear from Jesus, take what Jesus has to say to us into our lives, into our hearts, that we may be an expression and a reflection of what Jesus says out in the world. In his name we pray. Amen. So here's the parable of the compassionate employer. Jesus is speaking. For the kingdom of heaven is like, stop, file that away, we'll come back to it at the end of the teaching. For the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, those are used interchangeably, this is what it's like when God is in charge. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out, this would be three hours later, and he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon 
came, and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he, the landowner, answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you, to, didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have a right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. The late Frederick H. Borsch, who was a former professor at Princeton University, shares this personal story for our uh, reflection this morning. Listen to it. He writes, when my wife first became, became pregnant, I found that I had an inordinate desire to have a son. I feel apologetic about that now. It seems rather sexist. And I realize how much fun it would be to have a daughter. But I had two sisters and no brothers when I was growing up. The sisters were and are very nice, and I love them dearly. Still, it would also have been nice to have a brother. And the idea of having a son seemed sort of like having a very much younger brother. But when you want something that much, you figure it probably will not happen. But it did. Benjamin was born, and all my parental heart went out to him with more love than I knew I had inside me. There was nothing I would not have done for him. I gave away all my parental love unconditionally, irretrievably. So much was this true that when two years later my wife became pregnant again, I discovered that I had a very worrisome problem. When the second child was born, and as it grew, how was I going to hide from it the fact that I could never love it as much as the first? There was no way which I could understand that this could be done. It would be very difficult to take back even a small part of what I had given so completely away. I must have thought that love was like a pie. The more people that came to share it, the smaller the slices had to be. Then, as though to make matters worse, we had twins. But most readers will have guessed what then happened. It was like a miracle to me. Suddenly, I loved Matthew and Stuart with the same love with which I loved Benjamin without taking any love from him. This was a strange new arithmetic. The pie seemed to have become larger. And then the professor says this, this parental love was no special virtue of mine. This is what the loving of a parent is like, the love in this reckless and even-handed way. There was then and is now no point in asking me which of my sons I loved the most. One of them may become a very famous man, another a junkie. If anything, don't miss this. If anything, I will probably try to bend my love toward the one who appears to need it most. 
And that, folks, that is the truth about God that Jesus is revealing to us through the story of the compassionate employer. On another occasion, Jesus said it this way. He said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. For I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Just another way of saying, don't you think? I have come to bend the love of God toward those who appear to need it the most. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. All right, let's look to the parable. The storyline is straightforward enough. A landowner goes out early in the morning at 6 a.m. and hires day laborers to work in his vineyard. He likely already has a crew hired on a more permanent basis, but extra workers are needed on this particular day. This was not unusual. The landowner knows exactly where to go to find more workers, and these workers know exactly where to be so that he can find them. Well, here's my first question. Who are these workers? Who might they be standing around like this? Well, they are the unemployed, or at the very least, they are the underemployed. They are the poor. They are the marginalized. They are those who live day to day. There's no welfare system in place, no unemployment insurance compensation available to them. You work and you eat. You work and you feed your family for another day. No work, no food for you. No work, no food for your wife and kids. That is their daily existence. That is what they are used to. That's who they are. But they are also clearly eager to work. They are also clearly eager to take even the most menial of jobs. That's why they're up so early in the morning. That's why they're standing in the marketplace, standing, not sitting, because they're ready to go. They're ready to hop on the first pickup truck that comes along. They want to work. The landowner agrees to pay them a fair day's wage for a fair day's work. That's one coin, a denarius, for 12 hours of work, not an eight-hour day, a 12-hour work day. They are, after all, the poor. It's what they are used to. And that one coin, that one denarius, would provide just enough for each laborer to feed and house his family for one more day. Don't miss that. Just enough to provide for their families for one more day. Day. That was the going rate for day laborers. Everyone considered it fair. The landowner picks up the number he wants, sends them out into his vineyard. Four more times during the day, at 9 o'clock, noon, 3 o'clock, and 5 o'clock, the landowner goes back to town to hire more workers. Why? Why would he go back three hours later and then three hours later? Why? Does he need still more workers? Did he underestimate his need earlier in the day? Perhaps, that's certainly one possibility. But wouldn't that mean that he doesn't know his business very well? But we've read to the end of the story. 
We know the character of the landowner, so we wonder about another possibility. Perhaps he is simply looking to help out more families. This is, after all, a compassionate employer. He goes back at 9 o'clock, sees others still standing in the marketplace, and this is what he says to them. You also go and work in my vineyard and... I will pay you whatever is right. How much? How much does he agree to pay him? Whatever is right. In other words, I'll do right by you. You will receive justice from me. I will treat you fairly. Come with me. And what did these workers do? So they went. That's what Jesus says. He's telling the story. So they went. They ask no questions. They negotiate no wage. They just go. What's happening here? What's going on? Well, it would seem that this landowner enjoys a pretty good reputation in the community. He's known to be gracious. He's known to be generous. He's known to be just and fair. The workers don't haggle about their wage. They just go. Three hours later at noon, the landowner goes back. Ditto what happened at 9 o'clock. Three in the afternoon comes around. The landowner returns to the marketplace. And ditto what happened at 9 and at noon. Now, the implication in the story, follow me, The implication is the story is that each time he goes back, the workers were told they would be treated fairly. I will pay you whatever is right. Whatever is right. Whatever is just. But what is right? What is just? The question question hangs there for me. You too? The question, by the way, is supposed to hang there for us. Raised three times, but never really answered. It just hangs there for us until the end of the story. Another puts it this way, Ken Bailey. He writes, what is justice for an unemployed man eager to work who does everything in his power to find a job? What about those who are willing to stand in a public place all day long and endure the humiliating or pitying glances of the financially secure? The question hangs there. But then, then the landowner returns to the marketplace at 5 o'clock in the afternoon with just one hour left in the workday. Surely by now there will be no one left looking for work. But surprise, back to the story, about five in the afternoon, he went out, found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, sir, they answered. You see it? Again, the guys want to work. They're still there. They're still standing around, still hoping against hope that they can get something, anything, as long as it's something. We're here waiting. We've been here waiting all day. We haven't given up. We're able to work. We want to work. We don't want to go home to our wives and children empty-handed. And the landowner said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. There's just one hour to go. One hour of daylight left. And by the way, they still have to walk from the marketplace to the vineyard. Why doesn't the landowner just toss each man a coin and tell them to go home to care for their families? 
Why does he send them out into the field for just one hour? Why doesn't the landowner give them each a denarius, tell them to go buy some groceries, head home to their families? Doesn't that make more sense? Makes more sense to me. But as Ken Bailey points out, this is a Middle Eastern culture, a notoriously shame-based culture. Still is to this day. Even the blind beggar along the road works for his keep. His begging is seen as his work. Says Ken Bailey, he refuses, the landowner, refuses to humiliate them further by placing them on relief. Instead, he gives them the one thing they so desperately want, he gives them a job. There is no promise to pay them anything, and yet they accompany them. him. They had watched him return to the market repeatedly throughout the day and understood instinctively why he was there. No doubt they sensed that he was responding compassionately to their public humiliation and their determination to maintain their self-worth in spite of that humiliation. Do you see it? Can you see it? Don't you love it? I mean, I absolutely love it. It makes me think, now, this sounds like a Jesus story. And probably a story Jesus intends to be about the one he calls Father. You know, just like the parable of the prodigal sons. You, you remember that one, right? It's just a chapter earlier in the gospel. Uh, and, and it wasn't finally about either of the father's lost sons, by the way. That story was about the compassionate and generous waiting and welcoming love of the father. It too is misnamed. It's the father who's the prodigal because the word prodigal means extravagant. Back to the story because we're still in the middle of the story. So stay with me now. Five groups of workers are hard at work in the vineyard, right? But only the first group, only the 12-hour group, has a firm contract. A full day's wage for a full day's work, one denarius. Three other groups were given no specific amount as an offer, but they were told that they would be treated justly. They will receive whatever is right. What about the final group? What are they told about their compensation? Nothing. No promise at all, and yet they go with the landowner. They simply trust the man. Now, just now, just now, we're about to witness three surprises. So hang, hang on to your chairs. Jesus' audience doesn't see these coming. We don't see them coming either. We're right here in the middle of the story when surprise number one, the estate manager, the supervisor, the foreman, a hired hand shows up. Another question. Where has he been? Why isn't he the one going back and forth from the vineyard to the marketplace in the heat of the day? After all, that was his job. He's the foreman. It's what he was hired to do. Why isn't the landowner sitting in the shade, fanning himself and sipping tea? What's going on here? Perhaps, even most likely, this again says something profound and revealing about the landowner. Ken Bailey says it would have been unheard of in the Middle East 
for a landowner, a gentleman farmer, to make the trek in person from the farm to the market and back five times in a single day. But this landowner does the unheard of. Why? Could it be that the landowner cares about those unemployed workers whose family will suffer without supper this very night? This, remember, this is a landowner with a compassionate heart. This is a man of grace, amazing grace. What he's been doing all day long is no accident. No spur of the moment decision, he planned it. Planned it right down to the final payment. Then comes surprise number two. The landowner tells his manager, tells the foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages. That's what the version I read to you says. It's most likely what your version says. Call the workers and pay them their wages. Actually, that's not the best translation of the original Greek here. The best translation would be call the workers and pay them the wage. The manager is instructed by the landowner to pay the wage, which is a full day's pay. And who is he instructed to pay the wage? To every worker, no exceptions. Oh, and no bonuses for working the whole day. Now comes surprise number three. By order of the landowner, the ones who came to work last are to be paid first. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. So picture the scene with me. The workday is over. The sun is slowly setting in the background. The workers, these day laborers, are told to line up to receive the wage. Those who came to work last, who put in only one hour, if even that, are first in line. Then those hired at three in the afternoon, then those hired at noon, then those hired at nine, and then finally, those hired first, who had been working the whole day long. And into the hands of each is placed a single coin, a denarius. Okay, let's get this out of the way. Let's all admit it. We could have done this much better. We could, have, we could have avoided the anger, the conflict, and the drama that followed. Well, at least I could have. But I'm confident you could have too. I got this figured out. You got this figured out? Why not have the men who worked the longest go first? Let the first go first. Duh. Put a denarius in their hands, send them on their way. They would have been delighted and satisfied and out of the picture. They'd have gotten exactly what they were promised, a fair day's wage for a fair day's work. They didn't need to know what the next in line and the last in line were about to receive. But the landowner apparently has something else in mind. This is a teaching moment. And this compassionate employer wants those who worked all day to observe the grace that he extends to others. Remember, remember how earlier this story leaves that question hanging? What is fair? What is right? What 
is justice. For those who don't get hired first in the morning, but who continue to wait to be included for them. What is justice? That is this story's big question. And what we're meant to see, friends, are you ready for this? What we are meant to see, finally, is that this is not about justice at all. This story is about grace. I want you to hear just one more time from Ken Bailey. He says this, this story, I love this, this story focuses on an equation filled with amazing grace. It is an equation resented by those who feel that they have earned their way to more and deserve more. The cry, not fair. The cry, we should receive more. That cry is not the cry of the underpaid. No one is underpaid in this parable. The complaint is from the justly paid who cannot tolerate grace. To their market-oriented minds, Their worth as human beings is directly related to how much they are paid. Grace is not only amazing, it is also, for certain types, infuriating. That sucked the air right out of you. You We need to hear that again and, and look inside. Grace is not only amazing, it is also, for certain types, infuriating. Something to be resented. At the end of the day, the workers lined up to receive their pay. The last to report to work, the one-hour folks, went first, received a full day's wage. Just what they needed to care for their families for one more day. Now, can you imagine the looks on the faces of the workers at the end of the line? Those who had put in a full 12 hours. They're grinning from ear to ear, don't you suppose? They're thinking, if the last one's hired, get one coin and for one hour of work, surely we will get 12 coins for 12 hours of work. But when they hold out their hands, they receive a single coin, precisely what they had bargained for, precisely what they needed to care for their families for one more day. It isn't fair, they complain. It isn't fair. It isn't fair. And they were right. I mean, you know they were right. I know they were right. Jesus knew they were right. It wasn't fair. They were right. And yet, somehow in God's economy, somehow by God's arithmetic, they were wrong. They were wrong because they failed to see and failed to appreciate the generous heart of the landowner. The landowner gave not according to what each worker deserved, but according to what each worker needed. And he called that fair. He called that right. He called that justice. And that is God. That is grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. My ways are not your ways, says the Lord once again. Friends, hear me now. This is the great insight Jesus gave the world, that God operates differently than we humans. God does not operate on our standards of fairness. Grace does what is helpful and compassionate and calls that fair calls that justice. 
And herein lies one genius, perhaps even the genius, I think, of the Christian faith. God is not what most of us expect. If you expect it, it's probably not God. Says the psalmist, God does not treat us as our sins deserve. Instead, God does the unexpected. God does the unpredictable. God sends his one and only son to take the worst the world of his day has to offer the cross. Not fair. Not fair to Jesus. Jesus did not deserve the cross, yet Jesus endured the cross on our behalf. I like, uh, I like the story told about the sheep herder in the early West. You're going to like this one too, all right? Sheep herder in the early West was constantly troubled by his neighbor's dogs who were killing his sheep. Now, in those days, people usually solved their problems with lawsuits or guns. We're way beyond that today. But this godly man had a different idea. He did the unexpected. To every neighbor's child, he gave two lambs as pets, one male and one female. You guessed it, right? In due time, when all the neighbors had their own small flocks, which their children were fond of, they began to tie up their dogs. And the Bible says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's grace. And it would appear that in God's mind, that is also justice. Jesus came to a world governed by the rule of tit for tat. Always give out as least as good as you get from others. It's payback time, an eye for an eye. A tooth for a tooth, a life for a life, that's only fair, that's right, that's justice. But then Jesus turned that world and our world upside down when he said, but I tell you, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And then Jesus, he didn't just say it, Jesus did it. Hanging from the cross like a common criminal with his enemies all around him, some of them still cursing and scoffing and ridiculing him, saying, you, are, you, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourselves. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. And in the same way, says the Bible, in the same way the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he cannot save himself. And he's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if God wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. And Jesus, you know the story, the son of the almighty God, Jesus, who could have called 10,000 angels to come to his rescue, to mete out heaven's revenge, and to destroy those who hurled insults at him. Jesus said what? Father, forgive them. I don't know what they're doing. And that's grace. And grace, oh my, grace, it would seem is heaven's justice. What? What did he just say? He said grace 
is heaven's justice. Chew on that one while you're chewing on your lunch a bit later. Friends, there's one last thing. Oh, it's so important. One last thing we've got to see today. So don't drift on me. Stay the course, okay? It'll be worth it. I really, really don't want you to miss this. Let me push rewind and go back to the very beginning of the parable, like I told you we, we would, back to its introduction. Hear these words of Jesus once more. For the kingdom of heaven is like. That's it. Don't, don't miss that. For the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is like. And then this story. In other words, do you want to know what it's like when heaven and earth intersect? Listen to this story, says Jesus, and I'll tell you. Do you want to know what it's like when and where God reigns, when God is in charge? Listen to this story. Do you want to know what it's like when your prayer is answered? You know, the prayer that says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you want to know what it's like when that prayer is answered, says Jesus? Well, listen to this story. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. If you want to live a kingdom life, live like the landowner. Live like that compassionate employer. If yours is a kingdom heart, this is what you will look like. This is what you will act like. And this is what you will expect from others. If your eyes are kingdom eyes, you will see others like the landowner, like this compassionate employer sees others because the kingdom of heaven when God is in charge, where God is in charge, this is what it looks like. A wonderful young Christian woman by the name of Rachel Held Evans died unexpectedly a couple of months ago. Just 37 years young, leaving behind a grieving husband, two small children, and many admirers of whom I am one. She also left behind some wonderful, insightful, and powerful words in the form of books and blogs. Listen to these words of hers, which I think, which I think aptly describe the kingdom we are invited to embody and reflect before a watching world. She writes, we could not become like God, serpent in the Garden of Eden. Not going to happen, Adam and Eve. We could not become like God, so God became like us. That's Jesus. We could not become like God, so God became like us. God showed us how to heal instead of kill, how to mend instead of destroy, how to love instead of hate, how to live instead of long for more. When we nailed God to a tree, God forgave. And when we buried God in the ground, God got up. Jesus is the king, friends. He's the king of the kingdom. Jesus is the king of the kingdom. And he's alive. He's on the loose. He's on the move. His name is love. His way is grace. And his understanding of justice, his understanding of justice may not be what you expect or what you want. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
Amen. Would you pray with me? Stand while you're praying. Let's pray together. God, we're just, we're just awed by your goodness, your grace. Jesus, you have introduced us to your Father, and every time we take a good, hard look at that, we understand that The world in which we live is so out of sync with the Father, so out of sync with God, so out of sync with the Creator. And you call us to be your people in the world, to reflect your kingdom, to be your kingdom people. We say it all the time. You don't ask us to build a kingdom. You're going to let God do that because that's God's job. You do ask us to live like God is in charge every single moment of every single day that we live on this earth, that we act like it, that we be this kingdom to the world. Give us the strength, give us the wisdom, give us the will to do it and to be it to your glory. Amen. Thanks, Tony. Oh, is this working? Thanks, Tony. Um, you know, that's, it's kind of funny because I feel like the story is one of those that I like. Um, it's one of those that I think I understand, and I'm like, oh, I think I got it. And then I'm like, oh, wait, do I really? And I kind of go back and forth. And last night I was um, with some friends, and one of them was like, you know, I, um, she, you know she was raised in the church, and um, she was just saying that, She's like, I feel like sometimes I understand God, but then I feel like I don't. And I'm like, that's kind of the beauty of God. Like, there's these stories that we have, and sometimes we feel like we understand them, and sometimes we don't. And um, But I think it's so cool that God is so compassionate and loving and graceful and faithful that, um, and so incredible that we don't fully understand him all the time, that we don't fully understand God, and that we can just... And so, like, that's why I love worship so much is that I can just be like, you know, I, I don't fully understand you. I don't, you, you know, I, my mind is incapable of fully getting you, but I can just turn and respond in worship and respond in just saying, God, I'm going to love you regardless of whether I fully know who you are and fully understand you or not. And so um, I just ask that we just continue in that and um, continue in worship this morning.